This podcast is brought to you by RMA, the Risk Management Association. RMA's sole purpose is to advance the use of sound risk management principles in the financial services industry. Learn more at rmahq.org. This podcast is sponsored by RMA's annual Risk Management Conference. Attend this year's premier event, October 27 through 29, in New Orleans to hear the best practices for managing today's top risks. Visit rmahq.org for details. Hi, everyone. I'm Stephen Krasowski, contributing editor of the RMA Journal. Recently, I interviewed RMA Director of Global Markets Fran Garrett on LIBOR, the U.S. dollar benchmark for global borrowing for nearly half a century, which may be replaced by the Secured Overnight Funding Rate, or SOFR, within the next three years. Today, I'm joined by Paul Guinan, Associate Director of Global Markets and Securities Lending at RMA, to talk about SOFR. Thanks, Steve. Uh, <laughs> you really teed up a spicy topic for, uh, for today, but happy to be here. So, Paul, what exactly is SOFR? Well, Steve, SOFR is a calculated rate that takes a volume-weighted median of tri-party repo transaction data collected from two sources. First source is the Bank of New York Mellon, and the second is General Collateral Financing, or GCF, repo transaction data, as well as data on bilateral treasury repo transactions cleared through FICC's Delivery Versus Payment, or DVP, service. So to expand a little bit, SOFR is more than just that rate. There's an evolution kind of taking place with like additional rates based off of SOFR as well. For example, in July of this year, the Federal Reserve Governor Quarles said he would encourage the Fed to publish a benchmark based on SOFR to address the fact that the new benchmark wouldn't be comparable to LIBOR as a term rate. Term's one of the biggest issues with SOFR kind of out of the box. So Governor Quarles suggested this index be called the Secured Average Financing Rate, or SAFER, which is kind of a pending name. It's like a working title. Uh, And that SAFER rate, for lack of a better term, would be effectively calculated as a compounded average of daily SOFR fixings. LIBOR and SOFR are expected to coexist for at least a few years before the market chooses to migrate to SOFR or other interest rate benchmarks that they would prefer. We're seeing this currently in the market with some of the largest institutions and early adopters doing more and more trades based on SOFR versus the legacy LIBOR. That being said, there's still a number of institutions that are used to transacting via LIBOR, and they'll have to put some calories into updating their documents and identifying a new loan rate. But why SOFR, Paul? So to answer the question of why SOFR, I'll need to step back a little bit to 2014. Uh, That's when the Federal Reserve created the Alternative Reference Rates Committee, or the ARC. That would be a name that a lot of people, I think, would be familiar with at this point if you're working on the LIBOR transition at your firm. This ARC committee was tasked with a number of goals. The first was to determine potential alternative rates for LIBOR. A second was to develop roadmaps for implementing the U.S. financial market's transition to a chosen replacement rate. Following the ARC's research, they identified SOFR as the most appropriate replacement rate, and that'll be based on a few things which we can discuss. Um, They published a transition plan with specific steps and timelines that were designed to encourage adoption of SOFR. Uh, Again, they're they're very clearly in the corner of like promoting SOFR as the rate that they want banks to move forward with, and we can dive into why that is. The work that they're doing continues to establish SOFR term rates by the end of 2021. So if you're listening, 2021 is sort of the big date that you want to keep in mind uh, for this transition. The ARC said in March of this year that LIBOR supports $200 trillion in derivatives and loans, and that's far more than they previously thought. I mean, that's a huge number. 
that really emphasizes the need for promoting a robust alternative rate. There needs to be a, a large amount of liquidity in where we move from if we're going to cover a $200 trillion market. So derivatives specifically are an area to highlight, and they'll be a big lift for the market because they account for 95% of the exposure. Paul, how does SOFR address the vulnerabilities of LIBOR? It's a good question, Steve. You know, SOFR addresses the vulnerabilities of LIBOR uh, in a few ways. <clears throat> the first is, you know, it's based on actual lending rates between banks. That helps to reduce the risk of manipulation. And most people will know that, you know, manipulation of LIBOR is kind of how we got into this situation in the first place. So that's a pretty big point. The second is LIBOR isn't compliant with the International Organization of Securities Commissions, or IOSCO. It's not IOSCO compliant, essentially. So if you're unfamiliar with IOSCO, they're the international body that brings together securities regulators and they're recognized as the global standard setter in this, in this space. They develop, implement, and promote adherence to internationally recognized standards for securities regulation. Now in short, being IOSCO compliant is a big deal. So back to point number one, SOFR is a good representation of general funding conditions in the overnight treasury repo market. This is because it reflects an economic cost of lending and borrowing relevant to active market participants. And the market, you know, is a pretty diverse group, if you think about it, right? You have the various needs and motivations of broker-dealers, money market funds, asset managers, securities, lenders, insurance companies, and pension funds. You know, in other words, you need a rate that's going to cast a wide net to satisfy all of these different players. So in addition to the areas that I've just mentioned, you know, the ARC has highlighted SOFR as the most appropriate reference rate for both widespread, again, casting that wide net, and long-term adoption, uh, for the following reasons. You know, number one, like I said, SOFR's IOSCO compliant, LIBOR was not, and SOFR's fully transaction-based. You know, that's a great starting place there. That's, that's a very robust rate. Second, SOFR encompasses a robust underlying repo market. It's got more than $700 billion in daily transactions. Again, they need that deep liquidity in case, you know, there's a future crisis or something. This rate's not going to fail on us, essentially. You know, third, it's an overnight, nearly risk-free reference rate that correlates closely with other money market rates. Paul, why is it so important to have a standard accepted alternate reference rate in place if many contracts already call for fallback rates in case LIBOR becomes unavailable for some reason? Isn't there a way for participants to just revert to the fallback rates? Yeah, it's a good point, Steve. Um, you know, in a lot of cases, firms have fallback language in place. Uh, but it might not be economically appropriate because in a lot of cases, you know, this language was created to address the possibility of LIBOR going offline for, you know, maybe a day or two. You know, it's a short-term thing, not in perpetuity. So in addition, you know, a lot of the contracts that firms have, you know, they don't have any kind of fallback language at all. You know, for instance, the language in derivatives contracts a lot of times, you know, would just be silent if you're unable to gather a LIBOR rate from panel banks. So think about that. If the publication of LIBOR were just to stop, and again, 2021, you're looking at a cessation of this rate being produced, you're going to have hundreds of billions of dollars of derivatives flow with no defined fallback rate in these contracts. I don't know about you, but I don't really want to be a risk manager at any of those shops like when that day comes. No, That's going to be a nightmare. I hear you. I hear you. Um, do you think there will ever be a full forward-looking SOFR term rate? And if so, when do you f think something like this would come to fruition? So that's another good question. You know, the, as I talked about before, SOFR, after its <clears throat> initial sort of development, has kind of become like an ecosystem in some ways. You know, the creation of that forward-looking SOFR term rate is a part of what the ARC's calling its pace transition plan. 
again, if you go to the ARC website, you know, they'll have this outline. There's a lot of good resources there. Um, and, you know, there's a variety of pr approaches, uh, you know, uh, related to this plan, excuse me, um, you know, to creating one that the ARC is currently considering. You know, they're thinking of creating this, like, forward-looking rate. You know, so to this point, they've sort of dedicated an entire working group to explore various approaches and how to create the rate. Um, you know, a forward-looking SOFR rate would really require a deep and liquid SOFR-linked derivatives market. And again, you know, we're talking about these things being robust. We're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars at stake here. Um, so the ARC is working to encourage that SOFR-linked market, um, you know, to market participants. Earlier, uh, you, you explained uh, SOFR. Can you touch on what SAFER is? Yeah, so it's probably worth mentioning um, that when this rate was developed, uh, that was kind of a working name, and I sort of mentioned it a little earlier in our discussion. So it's not officially safer yet, I guess like in the interest of disclosure, I should probably mention that, but let's work with that name for the purposes of our discussion here. And, you know, safer kind of acts as a, a backward-looking term rate that's a compounded average of SOFR that the Federal Reserve staff is considering, you know, publishing now. So again, backward-looking, it's an average rate. Um, so, so unlike this forward-looking SOFR term rate, uh, that's going to require that deep and liquid, you know, derivatives market to produce that forward-looking rate. Um, the information to produce this, you know, average SAFER rate is available today. Um, you know, RMA is currently aligned with the ARC in encouraging a widespread adoption of SOFR, um, and there are certain financial instruments that could use SAFER moving forward as a reference rate as well, you know, given the appropriateness of what this rate would exemplify versus a forward-looking or just a base SOFR rate. So essentially what this means is there could be a suite of options in the market, you know, I, I sort of said like an ecosystem that's tied to SOFR. So you have one, you have SOFR itself, two, you have this average rate or SAFER as it's kind of been nicknamed, and three, you have the forward-looking SOFR term rate. You know, having these three options would really go a long way in meeting the needs of, like, the broad set of market participants we discussed previously. Again, all in the interest of casting that wide net. Paul, uh, we, we've touched on quite a few uh, topics today uh, regarding uh, SOFR. Um, any final thoughts on uh, where you see it going, uh, what... what um, what banks might want to do to, to prepare, prepare now for, for whatever, you know, is ahead? Yeah, uh, I guess in short, it's stay tuned. Um, but all kidding aside, you know, it's, uh, you know, be moving forward. I think there's, there's still a fair amount of inertia um, in the marketplace with, with folks, and, and a lot of it's around just the different rates that are available. Um, you know, I've mentioned the ARC a number of times, uh, the RMA has done some work with the ARC, and, and you know, we, we're kind of aligned with them in promoting SOFR for all the reasons that I've sort of outlined during the course of our discussion. So speaking of the ARC, um, and, and they're probably the main body that's pushing you know, this transition from a, you know, not official regulatory standpoint, but as a committee, they're pushing it forward. So they're proceeding gradually, so these changes don't really disrupt companies. They don't want to disrupt clients or the market. I mean, this has got to, you know, this is kind of like playing operation. You don't want to move too fast or you're going to set it off. Um, other international bodies appear to be awaiting ARC announcements, so that's why I sort of said stay tuned. 
Um, those bodies are kind of waiting for that before they convene. They'll decide next steps. So there's a little bit of a domino effect at play here. Um, you know, with the extent of the change in question, there are certainly risks that need to be managed. Um, you know, listening to your discussion with uh, Fran um, on LIBOR, um, you know, banks need to identify and document their exposure to the risks. That's the biggest thing is get them down, start forming teams to address them. You know, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time, right? So particularly during this transition, I think there's multiple areas that really could require a serious assessment. You know, firms want to take a look at pricing, liquidity, uh, internal treasury transfer risk, their accounting treatments, uh, margin and collateral agreements, just to name a few. Um, and one area that, I don't know if it ties those together, but client communication is crucial throughout this transition. You know, this, un this process is going to undoubtedly have some bumps in the road. Uh, I'm confident that uh, there's a number of risk managers listening to this right now that are living this turbulence day to day. Um, ideally, though, this transition will work smoothly, and it's going to keep the banking system on solid footing. Um, you know, for all the reasons that we discussed, you know, the OSCO compliance, the robust nature of these rates, it's all designed to have an orderly and smooth transition. So banks should be identifying each client that stands to be affected by the transition. Um, you know, they can't treat these communications as an afterthought. Again, it's just, you know, you got to do the work at the end of the day, right? Identify your, your risk areas and then do the work. Um, you know, they should actively be looking to integrate communication strategies into that implementation plan right from the start. So long story short, if you haven't started, now's the time. If you're already on your way, good on you and hopefully, uh, you know, stay tuned. If you're looking for some additional information as a quick plug, um, you know, the RMA is positioning itself to, you know, provide additional resources to folks on our website. We have a LIBOR transition library that has a lot of great articles and resources you can check out. In addition, early 2020, February, we're, we're looking to have a web seminar where we'll have some uh, risk managers that are living this day to day. They're leading their the LIBOR transition teams. Um, they're going to be speaking on some of the things you should be aware of and address some of the uh, the issues that, uh, that you should have in mind. So keep an eye out for that and please, you know, reach out to the RMA if, uh, if you're looking for resources. That sounds really great, Paul. And thanks for taking the time to chat about SOFR. Stay tuned for more library related podcasts coming soon.